You can please do open your Bibles and have them open at Nehemiah chapter 6, just for a moment, and then we'll be flicking over to, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's ask God to speak to us as we come to look at this part of the Bible together. Lord God, silence any voices of our own this morning so that we may hear your voice, so that we may hear your word and do what you call us to do. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray, through your holy written word, in Jesus' name, amen. It's going to be a picture on the screen in just a moment of a man. And uh, my guess is you might not know him to look at. And my guess is you might not even know him if I told you his name. His name is Roger Bannister. Does that ring a bell to any of you? Oh, some of you it does. If you're my generation, it maybe doesn't. Roger Bannister, he was the first human being to break the four-minute mile. And this is a picture of him crossing the line on that day. He was the first person to run a mile in less than four minutes, and he did it just by the skin of his teeth. Three minutes, 59.4 seconds. But he did it. And what was amazing is that he did this on the 6th of May, 1954. But people have been trying to break this record since 1886. For decades, people had tried and tried and tried, but failed miserably to run the mile in under four minutes. It's interesting, the experts, they, they had very strict criteria of what would have to be done for the mile to be run. They said that it would have to be run uh, on a day where it was 20 degrees centigrade. It would have to be run on a dry day on a hard clay track. Well, Roger Bannister, on a cold, wet day in Oxford, did it. It was amazing. You can imagine people's just amazement, can't you, that day? As they heard the news that the four-minute mile had been broken, you can just imagine the amazement of everyone. Well, I'm quite sure that the people living in Jerusalem felt exactly the same way when the wall of Jerusalem was built. After only 52 days of working on the wall, it had been restored. It had been renewed. What had been impossible for decades, the people had been back there for decades, and they tried rebuilding the wall before, and every time they tried rebuilding it, it had failed. What was impossible for decades, after just 52 days, had been done. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Amazing. One of the things that is quite interesting is that whenever it comes to Roger Bannister and running the four-minute mile, do you know it was beaten just 46 days after he, he completed the feat? 46 days after he'd beaten the four-minute mile, a runner called John Landy from Australia, he beat the record. He ran it much faster. And then a year later, three runners beat the four-minute mile in one race. Why? We don't know. Why could they suddenly beat the four-minute mile? We have absolutely no idea. But we do know why the wall of Jerusalem was built in 52 days. We do know why it was completed so quickly and so competently and so well. 
Why was that done? Because God had been at work. Look again at verse 16. It tells us there that when all our enemies heard about this, when they'd all heard that the wall had been built in 52 days, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah, he was a great leader, and he organized people well. And the people were great workers. They worked so hard together on the wall. They put the effort in. They piled brick upon brick upon brick. But ultimately, the reason the wall was built so well and so completely was because God had been at work. Now, the book of Nehemiah, it really could have ended here in chapter 6, couldn't it? Nehemiah, he's come from Susa, he's traveled the 800 miles, he's got the people together, he's organized everything well, they've now built the wall, and it's finished. You know, Nehemiah, he, he takes his to-do list out, build, wall of Jerusalem, tick, done. The book could finish here, but it doesn't. The book goes on. There's another rebuilding work to be done. You see, because if you remember back to, to chapter 1, it wasn't just that Nehemiah was concerned for the wall of Jerusalem. He was concerned for the people within the wall. He was concerned for God's people because their faith was like the wall. It was broken down. The people back home needed their faith built up again. They needed to, to have a renewed vigor and faith in God. And the second thing on Nehemiah's to-do list, the first one was, was complete the wall, tick, done that. But the second thing was to rebuild and restore and renew the people's faith. He wanted to see the people come back to God. He wanted to see the people enjoying God again. He wanted to see the people living in God's place, living God's way under his rule. But here's a question. How can Nehemiah do that? How can Nehemiah restore the people's faith? Well, the answer is that he can't. He can't do it. This is something that only God can do. But just like God used Nehemiah and the people and bricks and water, what Nehemiah knew and what we see in chapter 8 is that God restores his people through his written word. That's how God revitalizes people's faith. That's how God brings new vibrancy and restoration to churches which have strayed from him or have become apathetic. He does it through his written word. Let's delve into chapter 8. Chapter 8 opens, if you have a look there, by telling us that when the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns, but all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. So all the people after the wall was built, they went and they built their homes and they were settled at home. But on the first day of the seventh month, they all come back to the city again. And us today, we scratch our heads and we go, well, why did they come back? Well, it's the date that unlocks the answer. If I said to people that we gathered on the 25th of December, everyone would know why we gathered, wouldn't they? We've gathered to celebrate the birth of Christ. We've gathered to celebrate Christmas Day. The 25th of December, Christmas Day, it's a day on the Christian calendar that everybody knows, and we come together as a church family to celebrate. Well, the first day of the seventh month is a bit like this in the Jewish calendar. On the first day of the seventh month, the people were to gather to celebrate something called the Feast of Trumpets. And you can see that in Leviticus 23. 
It says there, say to the Israelites, on the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of Sabbath rest, a secret assembly commemorating with trumpet blasts. So the first of the seventh month, they get together for the festival of trumpets. Then on the tenth day of the month, they get together for the day of atonement. And then on the fifteenth day of the month, they're meant to celebrate something called the Feast of Tabernacles. So the, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar, it, it's a bit like December in our calendar. It's bonkers, filled with celebrations, filled with delight, filled with joy, filled with times of remembering great things that God has done. And so they get together on the first day of the seventh month for this festival. Now, one of the things we don't know is what the people were meant to do when they got together. You know, at Christmas, we know what we're meant to do, don't we? We're meant to eat turkey. We're meant to enjoy a big bit of ham. We're meant to have our family and friends around. We know what we're meant to do on Christmas Day to celebrate, don't we? We're meant to come to church and enjoy hearing about Jesus being born. But the, the Feast of Trumpets, we don't really know what they were meant to do. But we see what the people wanted to do. They wanted to hear from God's Word. They wanted to hear from the book. The people, they, they'd never heard from the book before. The people didn't really know much about God or His ways, but they'd seen Him at work. They'd seen Him rebuild this wall. And having seen God rebuild the wall, suddenly they want to know about Him. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe at a time in your life you knew very little about God and you'd very little interest in God, but then God did some things in your life that were undeniably Him, and suddenly it was like you just had this new hunger to hear about Him. Well, that's what happens here. The wall's been rebuilt. The people are just can't believe it, and they want now to hear about God. And so what do they do? They ask for a man called Ezra to come and to read from the book, to read from God's Word. And again, you see that in the opening verse of chapter 8. All the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So here we meet a man called Ezra. I don't know if you know anybody called Ezra. I think it's a really lovely name. But maybe you know nothing about Ezra. If you, what you need to know about Ezra is one main thing. Ezra was a man who knew the Bible inside out. Ezra was a man who had mastered God's Word and who had let God's Word master him. And you see that in the book of Ezra. Chapter 7 of the book of Ezra tells us that he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord God had given Israel. He, he was well-versed in the Bible. He knew it well. And then it also tells us in chapter 7 that he had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and so teaching it and its decrees and laws in Israel. They want to hear from God's word. And so they say, Ezra, Ezra, will, will you come and teach us? Ezra, will you come and will you bring your, your, your precious book you know that book that, that we don't have? Will you come and will you bring your precious book? And Ezra, will you open that precious book containing the words of God? And will you read it to us? Will, will you tell us what God says, Ezra? And so this man who's mastered God's word and this man who's let God's word master him comes before the people and he does what they want. He opens up 
the treasure. He opens up the book. This book that are filled with the very words of God. He opens it up to them. Let me ask you a question this morning. When you think of this book, do you think of it as treasure? Whenever you open up this book and and you look at the words written, do you recognize them as being the very words of God? Because, folks, that's what these words are. This mighty, awesome God who made the universe, who is beyond our understanding in so many ways, has made himself known through this book. And the people, they're excited. Ezra, bring out the book. We, we want to hear what God says. And so he does. He, he brings out the book. And in the rest of chapter 8, really what we see are three things. The three things we see are this. We see what Ezra and his men did with the book when they opened it. So we see what Ezra and the men did with the written word of God. That's the first thing we see. Then we see what the people did with God's written word. What the people assembled there did when the book was opened. And then the last thing that we see is what God did through his written word. And so this morning, we're going to look at those things. So first of all, what did Ezra and his men do with the book once they opened it? They did two things. And the first thing they did was they read it. And they read it for quite a long time. Ezra read God's written word out to the people that they could hear it. And he read it for a long time. Look at verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. He read out the words of God. Someone once said to me, Marty, If you've ever wanted to hear God audibly speak to you, the way to do it is to open your Bible and to read it out loud. And that's true, isn't it? Because these words, the words contained in this book are God's words to us. And simply whenever we read them, we're reading the words of God. When I read them out or when someone else in church reads out the Bible, They're reading out the very words of God. And that's what the people wanted to hear. And that's why Ezra simply read out of the book so that people could hear the very words of God. You know, I've been to some churches and the Bible's not read at all. It's very strange to me that. That the Bible is not read in some churches. Or if it's read, it's read just a couple of verses but not very much of it is read. But the reason, folks, why we read the Bible in church and the reason why we read the Bible at home is because we're reading the very words of God. Will you understand everything that's read out loud? No. Will you understand everything that you read at home? No. But the main things that God wants to say will be plain. And by just reading his word, you're hearing his voice. Has that ever happened to you? you've just read a passage of Scripture or you've just heard a passage of Scripture read and without anything being explained, 
the very words jump off the page and into your mind or into your heart. That's what the written word of God does. And so, Nehemiah, so, so Ezra, when, when, he, when he brings out the book, he, he just reads it out and he lets God speak for himself through his word. But let's be honest, some things in the Bible, well, they're quite tricky to understand, aren't they? So, some things in the Bible are hard to understand. It's, it's hard to understand what they mean, especially some of the things that were written so long ago in a particular context. How, how are we meant to understand all of the Bible? It's hard, isn't it? And so as well as reading from the law of God, as well as reading from the book, do you see what Ezra had some of his men do? Look what they did. Some of his men, they, they made it clear. They explained it. Have a look at verse 7. The Levites, that's the men who worked in the, in the temple. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Paliah, all of these men, these men who knew the Bible, look what they did. They instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Then look at verse 8. I love this. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. I love that. This is the job description of a preacher. The preacher's job is to open the book and to read from the book and then to instruct the people and to make it clear so that they understand. Martin Luther, some of you will know him, he was one of the main reformers. And Martin Luther was just so bright. He was so intellectually brilliant. He was one of these people who could make an argument. There's a lovely butterfly to distract us. <laughs> he was one of these people who, who could argue well. He could write well. He could think well. He was a genius. Such a clever, 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 clever man. And because he was so clever in his congregation, he would get magistrates and he would get lawyers and he would get professors. He would get a lot of very clever academic people coming to his church to hear the great Martin Luther preach. But I think they must have been disappointed because Martin Luther, he condemned preachers who aimed at the smart people. He condemned preachers who aimed at the intellectuals in the crowd instead of the simple, normal people. And what he said was this. He said that even though he had more than 40 doctors and magistrates in his church, when he preached, he spoke to the young people, the children, and the servants. And then I love this. He said, if the educated people weren't impressed, the door is open. Let them leave. But I love that. The job of a preacher is to make God's word understandable and clear so people understand. And folks, there's more of you here who are Bible teachers than you realize. Some of you go out to shine and you teach our children. Some of you sit down with your kids or your grandkids and you teach them or your nephews or your nieces. Some of you are involved in youth ministry in outside organizations. Some of you speak at the PW or you speak at the women's meeting. There are many of you here and you might not have recognized it, but you're Bible teachers. You share the Bible with others. And what I really want to encourage you folks 
is that whenever you're teaching the Bible, make it your greatest aim just to make it clear, to make it understandable, to make it so that everyone you're speaking to can understand. Make that your goal when you share the Bible with people. So that's the first thing we see, what what Ezra and the men did. They read from the Bible and they made it clear and explained it. Then what we see is what the people did. And there's two things they did. One of them I'm not going to talk about because um, there's just not enough time, but but they simply, they stood when the Bible was read. They stood to show reverence for it, so they revered the Bible. They were there, and they, they recognized it as God's Word, so they stood to revere it. But the second thing I think is very important. The second thing they did was that they gave it their attention. Have a look at verse 3. Ezra read it aloud from daybreak till noon. He, he read the Bible for six hours out loud. And then look at the end of that verse. Look at what it says. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. When it came to the Bible being read, when it came to the Bible being explained, the people listened attentively. Here's a very challenging question. Do we do that? When you come to church on a Sunday morning, do you intentionally try to pay attention when the Bible is read? Do you work hard to follow along with a sermon even though it might not be the most exciting sermon you've ever heard? Do you work hard to give your Bible the attention it deserves? Um, Whenever I was in primary school, one of the things I always remember is whenever we were being really loud and noisy and messing about, and I'm pretty sure teachers still do this, but the teacher would say this, okay, boys and girls, turn on your listening ears. Do you remember ever had that? And, and we would all, you know, we'd all get our ears and we'd make a little clicking sound. And as soon as our listening ears were on, we'd be quiet and we'd listen to the teacher. And it's amazing, isn't it? Back here, the, the people, that's what they did. They, they turned on their listening ears. For six hours, they, they had their attention on God's word and they listened hard. They worked hard at listening to the Bible being read and the Bible being preached. One of the most discouraging things as a minister standing at the front and seeing people completely zoning out. Um, what is never nice to see are people's molars. And uh, Sometimes that happens, and some of you here have got lovely molars. <laughs> but it's so discouraging to, to see people zoning out. And for a long time, I always blame myself. Because that's what you do when you're the preacher. You blame yourself, oh, that was so boring, or there wasn't enough illustrations. And, and there was probably partly true. If you're zoning out, maybe I haven't done my job as well as I should be doing it. But this passage made me realize perhaps the reason people are zoning out is because they're not doing their job. Perhaps the reason why we zone out is because we're not actually committed to giving God's word our full attention. Folks, that's what I want to encourage you to do, to come to church and to give God's Word your attention. Maybe to do that, you need to go to bed earlier on a Saturday night instead of the wee hours of Sunday morning so that I definitely don't see your molars as you doze off. Maybe you need to just come with that attitude where, look, it doesn't matter if if the sermon isn't brilliant, I'm going to give it my attention because God might have something to say. Charles Spurgeon he has a, a little book called Lectures to My Students. And in it, he, he's lecturing preachers and he's talking about getting people to listen. 
Uh, and he has this lovely illustration. And he says that whenever people come to church, they should be coming listening to the sermon or listening to the Bible like they would if they're listening to the will of someone being read who they're expecting to get someone from. You imagine that, you know, you get one of these emails and a great, great auntie in Nigeria has died, you know, and it's a spam, but then you find out it's not a scam. So here you are, you're brought before this court and, and the lawyer gets up and he reads the will out of the deceased person and you're there and, and you know that, that there may be something for you. How do you listen to that? Well, you don't criticize the lawyer <laughs> for how he reads it, do you? You don't go, do you know what, that, he's not reading that in a particularly good way this morning. I, I just can't listen. No, what do you do? You listen so attentively because you're expecting to get something from it. And that's how God's people listened here. And that's how I really want to encourage you to come to church and listen to the sermons. Expecting God to speak. Expecting to get something from it. Come like you're about to listen to the will of someone being read that you might get something from. The final thing that we see in our passage is we see what God did through his written word. Uh, and this could be a sermon in itself, and so I'm, I'm not going to go into everything, but there's a number of things he did. The first thing was he led people to worship him. The, the word was read, and people saw God, and they saw how awesome he was, and they saw how magnificent he was, and they saw how kind he was, and they saw how holy he was. They, they read the scriptures and they saw God. And what does it say he did in verse 6? It says that the people bowed down and worshipped him. Folks, I hope that some Sundays, as you hear the Bible read and preached, that it leads you simply to go, isn't God wonderful? Some Sundays, the sermon should lead you to worship. It should lead you into awe. Another thing that we see that God did was he, he, he convicted people of their sin and their need of forgiveness. If you look at verse 9, you'll see there that the people were weeping, having heard the law. They were crying. They were upset. When they heard what God had said, when they heard what he was like, when they heard how they were supposed to be living, they were upset because they realized that they weren't. And they were upset because they realized that they needed a forgiver. And sometimes, folks, when we hear the Bible read and preached, it will upset us. It'll trouble us. But we don't need to be troubled because there is a forgiver who has come. The Savior has been. And so, folks, whenever we hear the Bible and we're convicted of our sin and we're troubled by our sin and we're troubled by how we're living in light of God's law, in light of His Word, Yes, that's normal, but don't let it stop with just sadness. Look to the Savior and find joy. Look to the Savior and find forgiveness. Because that's the main thing that God does through his word. He brings joy. He brings joy. Look at verse 10. You see joy there, and you see it the whole way through the rest of the passage. In response to God's word, the people were filled with joy. Joy that this God loved them and had made them, and despite their sin was going to forgive them, and had given them this wonderful celebration. Then it also spurred people to good deeds. You see that in verse 12. Go out and the people have nothing prepared for this. Go and bring them food and they go and they do that. And then the last thing we see is that through his word, God gave people a desire to obey him. 
Folks, God always does something through his word. He always does something through his word. And if you leave here Sunday by Sunday, thinking to yourself, well, listen, that really did nothing for me. There's something wrong. Because God is committed to speaking through the scriptures. I love this. The wall is built. The people are far from God. Ezra brings out the word of the Lord. And through the word, they're restored and renewed. Folks, if you're feeling far from God, if you feel like you need a a, a reinvigoration in your spiritual life, then I want to encourage you to do two things. Look at the book. Look at the word. And then look at Jesus Christ. You're not going to be revitalized navel-gazing. You're not going to be revitalized beating yourself up for how miserable a Christian you are at the minute. You're not going to be revitalized by simply trying harder. No, to be revitalized, to be renewed, to have your your spiritual life restored. It's by looking at this wonderful, gracious God and by coming back to Him and delighting in Him. Let's pray together. Lord, you know that so often we take the Bible for granted. We, We fail to remember the treasure that it is, that it's your very words written down in our language that we could understand who you are and what you're like and all you've done for us and have done for us in Christ. Father, for each of us, would you restore our love for your word? Would you give us a desire to read it? And Lord, as we read it, would you speak to us and show us Christ and show us who you are and revive us again? Lord, thank you for the reviving of your people back in in ancient times. And Lord, we pray that this morning and in the days ahead, as we continue to look at your word, that you would revive us here in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.